0: Thank you guys for joining another down the hatch podcast we are officially recording we have a lot of people probably the most people we've ever had on this particular podcast as guests alicia and i are so happy to have you here um and this discussion is going to be about basically dysphagia management or slp practice in this COVID era today is march 30th so we don't know for the beginning Or middle and we're certainly not at the end of this phenomenon so we wanted to talk about some of the issues that have been flying around social media related to SLPs and their role related to PPE related to fees and any other thing that comes up in this topic but first I'm gonna have everybody introduce themselves except for Dr. Vose because you guys know who she is right now um she's my co-host and Vince do you mind starting out introducing yourself
1: sure my name is Vince Clark and um Currently I'm working with AmpCare LLC in a marketing sales consulting role in, uh, I live in South Georgia as well. So um, I think where we are in the country probably matters as far as uh, this conversation as well, so.
0: Okay, Uh, so shocker, you're Southern, nothing about the way you talk suggests that at all.
1: (laughs) I'll try to cut and switch a little bit.
0: (laughs) Okay, Megan.
2: Hi, I'm Megan Nosol. I am from Raleigh, North Carolina. I am a treating therapist, that's what I like to call myself. I'm in the outpatient setting. Um, I'm actually on maternity leave right now, and I'm hoping to get back to work soon. Okay. <laughs> My clinic is closed, so we'll see. Fabulous.
0: Uh, Dr. A, John. Ah, well, thank you.
3: Yes, this is John Ashford, and I am the education director and co-owner of SA Swallowing Services um, in Nashville, Tennessee. We are a mobile fees company, and um, right now things are a little slow. So um, uh, I'll be interested to see what we have to talk about tonight.
0: Fabulous. Ed Bice, what's up?
4: Hi, guys. I am a clinical consultant for IOP. Most of you know IOP. I So I provide clinical support in lots of capacities. And uh, most of you know me from this podcast. I live in rural Southwest Virginia.
0: Okay. Uh, So Matt, you're up next.
5: My name is Matt Ward. I work with SA Swallowing Services, uh, mobile fees provider in Nashville, Tennessee. I am our clinical and trainee uh, instructor. And what that means is I do external and internal uh, training for fees competency. So both within our company and then uh, students who come from well around the world and around the globe to uh, do training with us. That's, that's my role. And I also do fees on a daily basis.
0: All right. Next we have Dan.
6: I'm Dan Weinstein, I'm a speech pathologist at a hospital in Philadelphia where I am the chief of audiology and speech pathology. I uh, mainly do diagnostics, so fees, fluoro, stroboscopy, voice, and dysphagia. All
7: right, and I also have Liz on the call. Hi, um, I'm Liz, I'm logging in from New Orleans, Louisiana. Um, I think Vince is right that where we are in the country does matter right now, because we, we actually top the list of the highest number of deaths per capita of any county in the United States. So COVID is rampant here. Um, I am an acute, ther- acute care therapist. I work in a stroke hospital here in New Orleans. Um, and then I also run a mobile fees company called Dysphagia in Motion, where we provide um, fees to local skilled nursing facilities and rehab centers.
0: All right. So I'm going to go ahead with the first question of the day. First question of this podcast is Can someone please tell me whether or not they believe that SLP's role as it relates to this COVID 19 virus and everything that's going on is essential, non essential, or perhaps somewhere in between? Who'd like to take this to start? And of course, the question is what evidence, objective or objective, do you have to support your opinion?
8: I think it would be helpful too, for um, those of you that are practicing, to just kind of give an overview of what your hospital's policies are, or your facility that you're working with, like what their stance has been, um, regardless of your own opinions, sort of what practice looks like at your hospital, if things have changed, Um, I think it would help give a perspective for those that work in different facilities and different types of settings, acute versus outpatient versus mobile fees. I think we're going to have different conversations based on the facility that you're at.
6: I think that there are a few issues. Um, and not just in terms of COVID, but in terms of the facility that you're working at. You know the type of the facility. So, for instance, if you're in a hospital, are we essential for seeing COVID patients? And then there's the issue of are we essential for other areas of the hospital? You know, given that there is a lack of PPE nationally, and um, you know we we should really be looking at almost every patient as if they could potentially be COVID positive. So, you know, are our services essential in terms of seeing patients throughout the hospital and specifically patients with COVID-19?
0: That was Dan, by the way. Any other thoughts? What do you guys think? Can
2: I chime in? (laughs) This is Megan. Um, You know, I I think that um, we have to look at in, in a con, in a certain context because with a shortage of PPE if in an ideal world if PPE was available to everyone and we didn't have any problems there i think that it would be a a different situation for slps but there the fact is that there is a shortage and so we have to collaborative work collaboratively and be team players with the other medical providers who are probably uh, seeing critical critically ill patients um, whereas we might be seeing patients who may be able to be seen over over the phone um, or over um, over the computer um, and we also have to take into consideration the environment so uh a hospital is a very dangerous environment for for sick people right now. So um, it's it's PPE is personal protective equipment. It's meant to protect us as clinicians, as providers. But um, with such a infectious, communicable disease right now, um, we're we're faced with making very difficult decisions with PPE. And so I feel that the, the, this question is really not about whether or not we're essential, because I think that our our, our services are essential in in one term, in one uh, manner, but maybe not when there's a shortage of PPE. So,
0: so can, Matt, can I just uh, put a pin in something? I just want to put a pin in something that we might come back to later, which is, I don't want to suggest that speech pathologists' roles aren't essential. I just want to suggest that every time we go to the literature, the literature do not strongly support that there is extensive data showing what our role is and what exactly we do and how we benefit patients with data. Um, Langmore papers often suggest that our, our treatments aren't efficacious or that they're not effective. So I just wanna throw out the idea that at a baseline before COVID, if we were having this conversation, we might all perhaps be saying, what are we doing? That was, that's, that's what we've been talking about for the last five years. What are we doing? Is what we're doing matter? Uh, and so COVID, as you said, adds that additional layer of now that this is here, are we expendable, aren't we? So I, I just wanna put that plug in in case that comes up later on. Matt, sorry to interrupt.
5: Oh no, that's, that's fine, this is Matt. Um... For those of you who can't tell from my voice um, and who don't have the visual prompts, uh, I, I do think getting back to Alicia's point, where we practice matters. Uh, and, and because what, what we're seeing uh, one thing being a mobile feast provider, we are going to predominantly places that don't have fluoro suites, which are SNFs, LTACs, rehab hospitals, long-term care facilities. And while PPE is something that, that uh, I am cognizant of uh, and Understanding that there is a shortage of it. Uh, we also need to be critically thinking and using our minds to think about uh, n- Just outside of sort of that PPE box that PPE and social distancing every time you turn on the, the news lately you hear those terms uh, but for me if, if I believe uh, our services may be critically warranted in uh, a nursing facility uh, we could potentially uh, prevent malnutrition dehydration and pneumonia that would end up in that patient being sent to a hospital now using up a hospital bed um, and seeing all of those providers that may have been preventable not saying that we can prevent everything not saying that our treatment is always efficacious but that is another thing that is on my mind and I'm happy to hear what the rest of you think about uh, those types of things as well.
8: Matt can you give me a sense of in your um, in your practice how how do things look different so when you're making that those tough decisions about the, the consults that come in and, and patients that want to be seen or therapists that want you to come in and see what's your decision-making process like? How has that changed since this whole process? Is it, has it not changed very much? Are you um, seeing different types of patients? Are you um, holding different types of consults, having different types of conversations? What's that process look like now?
5: So just like everyone else is doing right now, we are filtering decisions through about 30 different lenses, it seems, and it changes on any given day from federal recommendations to public health uh, guidelines for your county and state, um, and sometimes municipality. Um, So we are attempting, at least right now, because most of our nursing facilities do not have PPE for a COVID-plus patient, we are attempting to screen for uh, make sure the patient has been screened before we get there uh, uh, for COVID symptoms or that they have a negative COVID test. Uh, so that's one thing. The other thing is, since the, the CMS has come out with its guidelines, that, um, and I can't remember the language off the top of my head, but it, you need to be documenting this is medically necessary and not an elective procedure. I have seen just anecdotally a, a trend in the patients I am seeing now are the patients that need to be seen. These are not sort of the patients that have some sort of esophageal complaint and the doctor said, here's an order, go take a look at them. They, they have a globus sensation. These are patients who um, you're, you're making those decisions. Are, are we going to send this patient out um, for long-term feeding? Uh, so we're talking going from an NG tube to a PEG tube or patients with significant debilitating critical illness that would result in uh, a rehospitalization quite quickly. So just anecdotally, I'm seeing the patient's that probably we do need to see um, and not seeing those other sort of uh, what I would call run-of-the-mill patients who who about 50% of them may have swallowing disabilities and 50% of them may not on any given day. So I have a question for you, Matt, as a follow-up for that.
4: A couple, well, a couple months ago before all of this happened, I I asked a question in the fees and MBS Facebook forum. Um, The question was something like when you're doing imaging, how, often do patients have dysphagia? And a couple answers actually came in today. And so I tabulated it. And of course, it's not weighted. It's just totally anecdotal, right? And but in that group of the 16 responses, it equaled 31%. And so I'm interested to know, you were saying that it's increased, that the, the critical illness of your patients have increased. Just in the last couple weeks of the fees that you've conducted,
5: what percentage of patients actually had dysphagia? Um, so since maybe the 15th, uh, when all of this kind of, uh, around that time, things have been changing for a while. It's kind of a moving target. But if you look back to the 15th for me, I would say every patient I've seen has dysphagia. And then if you want to compare that to, we, we did something it's, it's in review right now. I submitted some revisions. So we did something with the Yale swallow protocol and fees, um, with Dr. Suter and I had 240 patients in that sample or 240 participants in that sample. And, uh, it was 55% had dysphagia and, uh, the other, uh, so it was about 50, 50 in that sample. And that was just our patients that we saw on a daily basis. We just did a a three month study and it ended up with 240 patients and about 50% did have dysphagia and 50% did not. So that's what I'm used to seeing. And that's some data that's actually hopefully going to be published. Um, and then, what I've seen since then, and it's a much smaller sample size, uh, has been all patients with some sort of, at least what you would probably term moderate dysphagia. So what are you using triage these patients? Are you using the Yale,
4: the MASA, some other suggested uh, validated measures to these therapists before you go in, or are you just reviewing the chart?
5: What are you doing before you go in? Uh, So for us, since we're referral-based and it mostly comes in through text, it is literally just a conversation with that therapist. I will say most of the time now, these therapists are having to go to directors of rehab, uh, directors of nursing, and or administrators to get this cleared. They're not even trying to get the patients that don't really need a swallow study a swallow study. I'm just not seeing that at all. What I'm seeing is these are the patients they had to beg and plead for, and those are the patients that we're seeing.
3: Can I jump in on top of this, uh, what Matt has to say? The other thing we've done here at SA Swallowing is that we, um, you know, in the past we could go into a center and <laughs> you'd say, I want to see the order and they'll say, oh, wait a minute. Um, I'll go write it up. Well, that's just, that's just day-to-day practice out there. We, we won't see anyone without an order. Well, what we've done, what we've decided to do, what is that, we're not going to take those orders anymore. It has to be pre-approved by a physician. We won't take um, you know, a nurse, we won't take an SLP's written order. We want that physician to be informed that a, a, a fee study is needed and that that approval comes prior to us even being contacted. So this is a little bit of tightening up and making sure, on on a lot of levels, that everyone's informed and also goes to the PPE question as well. Is this an essential uh, study? Does the physician need this study? If so, then we will go in, and uh, if we have to use PPE, which if we will, we will use PPE for that because that physician needs that that study. It's really not for us to determine that, but it's really kind of all goes back to the physician one more time. So that's kind of a a little tightening up of things that we have done uh, that we used to not do so much, you know, the SOPs could refer and that sort of thing, but not now. We'd like for the physician to know right up front and beforehand.
8: So I'm curious, I think that we've talked, this has been mentioned a couple of times. And I think it would be really helpful, especially for the people listening as they're making these decisions. I've heard people say, um, this is a patient that is a, that needs to be seen. And I'm curious if anybody wants, especially in different settings, that's going to be a different answer. If if you could give an example specifically of a patient that needs to be seen, that if you didn't, there would be major problems. Um, And and just, you know, maybe give an example of a patient or try to be specific. Because I think that's where people are getting hung up is who does need to be seen, who doesn't need to be seen, and who needs to be triaged or or, um, just isn't essential. So I'm just curious on people's thoughts on that.
0: So can I just add there, that's exactly what I was thinking. I was like when Matt, for instance, he said... In this study with Dr. Suter, 55%, but now 100%. What are the clear, concise, succinct characteristics that these you're hearing from um, that you know about these patients before you touch them now that are different from the ones before that would be in the 55% that don't? So again, what are the criteria or the characteristics that you're hearing that might be correlating positively with the 100% now that you didn't have in this other group that 50% of them or so ended up being normal or functional?
5: Um, medical frailty or medical fragility. I mean, we're going a lot to the LTAX. I mean, the, the, the trait patient who comes in and now they've got a clogged dob tube and they're going to either send them back to the hospital to replace that dob tube or the, the doctor is just going to say, yeah, we're going to go on and place a peg. Um, that type of patient that, uh, is, is quite ill. And then in the skilled nursing world, we're looking at, I've seen a lot of, uh, significant weight loss over, over several months with a known history of dysphagia, uh, significant worsening since going to the hospital, um, and developing pneumonia. So those are two different types of patients that I have seen in the past week. Um, is that getting at what you're kind of looking for, Alicia? And, you know, so? Yeah. So
0: now, so you've characterized the people who you've seen the last week. Can you characterize the people before this that might be the people who end up not really having dysphagia? What are, what are their characteristics when they're referred to you that you end up scoping and deciding? hey, guys, these, these people are fine?
5: You know, I'm going to say just as someone who does imaging, as someone who before I did imaging relied on imaging heavily, um, the characteristics are a lot of times the same. I mean, we don't know until we look, right, uh, that that whether or not you actually have pharyngeal dysphagia, maybe you can determine oral at bedside, but they're going to have a lot of the same symptoms. Uh, The medical complexity of the patients seems to be what has changed in the past two weeks. So all of the comorbidities, all of the other things that are going on with that patient. We do have some other patients who are probably having difficulty swallowing, but they may not be, um, uh, if they're more medically stable, they're not getting seen right now.
1: Um, Could I jump in here? When I was out doing fees all the time, you saw a large population of Patients that had GERD that may not necessarily have a true oral pharyngeal dysphagia, you can't tell those apart at bedside. Um, I think that there, a study that I've in my mind that is just begging to be done is, you know, what percentage of patients in skilled nursing um, are patients that would fall under the chronic cough syndrome category uh, that is so big and popular now out, you know, in the voice world. You're hearing about that all the time you you can't tell. I mean, some of the patients that look the best at bedside have been some of the worst swallowers. So even, even though I know the quality, you know, I, you know, I enjoy having this conversation with people on here that I know are quality providers because I know, um, I know the tools that they're using to try to sift through these patients. I would still bet you that people are getting missed. Um, even though we're doing the best we can under very harsh circumstances right now. And that was, that was just the comment I wanted to make.
0: So just to be clear, Dan, I, did you have your hand up? I don't know. Okay, Dan, I'm going to jump in. Just to be clear, Matt, if I understood what you said, you said, and perhaps also Vince what I'm hearing you saying is they seem the same because you haven't looked in there yet, but somehow now in this last two weeks, It's 100% with dysphagia with the same criteria, the same, not criteria, same characteristics. But before this, it was like 55%, which a larger sample. What do you think explains this? Do you think somehow these patients just happen to be uh, 100% with dysphagia and before they just weren't? Because what? I mean, I guess what I'm trying to understand is, because I don't know, I, I don't have a feeling about this. I just don't understand why in this last two weeks, 100% of them have dysphagia with the same characteristics as before when they had a larger sample of people, and that's about 50%.
1: I I don't think it's anything improper that's going on or or something that people are doing, even in the field that is um, wrong. I feel like what is going on is, they're having to tighten this criteria down so much that by the time they refer somebody, they're the sickest of the sick. I'm sure that's that seemed to be what Matt was referring to—the people that are, you know, when I went in LTAX, all of those patients were typically very ill in some way. I mean, they would almost all have some sort of oral pharyngeal dysphagia. So I, so I get where um before when I was a fees when I was doing fees all the time, I would openly encourage people you know, don't guess at bedside, call me in and allow me to help you shape your service appropriately. And now we can't really do that as much because we also don't want to go into a building um, and then spread this virus amongst our other 10 customers during the day. So we're, so we're having to get tighter and tighter. And so we probably are missing and i'm not I, i'm not talking about sas in particular i'm just talking about in general people are probably getting missed somewhere
8: well you're not getting I, let's just see consults right we get those a lot we all do right, right? somebody exactly. coughs and the physician just goes well just call speech pathology and let's see i think everybody is having to be very judicious about is it really worth bringing another healthcare professional in to see this patient And is the information that's given by this professional worth the risk of bringing another professional in who I know is going to go see 20 patients after this person? And I think that that's where the shift in the types of patients that are getting seen, I would guess, is very different, that you're getting the patients that are like, we need a plan <laughs> we got to figure this out it's not the patient that's just like oh you you um have something stuck in your throat with bread well let's get speech pathology those people can wait right i mean am i wrong in this
1: but even more concerning mm-hmm. than that is when you have ent's as a group saying we're not going to do endoscopy anymore and they're our frontline airway people i mean that's kind of concerning to what's, me.
8: what's concerning about it just so that I'm clear. I'm not arguing against it, I just want to be sure. Because to oh. me, I would think that it's good that the the sensitivity of the consults is, is increasing, that especially during this time, right? So I don't want to be doing consults all day on patients that are essentially normal.
6: I think that there are two factors here that are very specific to being in the middle of a pandemic. Number one is that we know that there is a lack of PPE nationally. So are um, those who are providing fee services, regardless of the setting, are they using the appropriate recommended PPE? And if they are, should that PPE not be reserved for those who are working in ICUs directly with COVID patients? That's one possible issue that I think that needs to be discussed. The other is, you know, to the point of, we don't want to infect these um, patients who are at especially high risk in nursing homes and, you know, other settings as well, but older patients in general, typically with dysphagia, how um, sensitive and specific is the testing for COVID right now? So while they might have um, passed a screen or even tested negative for COVID, we do know that the incubation period is up to 14 days. So how can we be sure that the patient is truly negative for COVID and, you are, and that you as a clinician are truly negative for COVID and that you are not passing that infection from or that virus from patient to patient.
3: Let me, may I jump in? The, in the real world out here, what's happened, at least in the state of Tennessee, I won't say the real world, I'll say the state of Tennessee. Um, It's not even across the board. It's not textbooky. For instance, in our larger metropolitan areas, we have a larger uh, infection rate. And in our more rural areas, we hardly have any at all. And (laughs) uh, Michelle and I laugh about this a lot because um, she says, John, I walk into a nursing home today. Nobody had on a mask nobody, they were hardly wearing gloves. And, um, you know, I just sit there with my mouth open. And so I thought maybe the first time she said this, that that maybe just was a unique situation. Well, in some of our more rural areas where this epidemic has not hit yet, it's still pretty much life as usual out there. And so it's different from what we see in our more populated areas. And so that also reflects on how they're being referred. As I said before, we want, now we're, we're putting the requirement that a physician make sure that we have, knows about the order before we go out. But still at that, um, until this really hits home in some of our more rural areas, um, we're seeing, we're the only ones wearing masks. We're the only ones prepared to go in. Um, uh, Michelle was talking about today she went in one facility and there were five people standing within three feet of each other and no one had on a mask and they had residents next to them. So what I'm trying to say here is that while we are very much concerned about the spread of this, um, it's not equal practice across the board. It's really being practiced a whole lot tighter in more infested areas than those that are not well shouldn't it be
6: incumbent upon us to set the example in that case
3: michelle walks in with a mask matt walks in with a mask we wear the gloves we have what what we have yes i mean and and you know when you say to one of them well where is your mask they look at you like you're crazy now this is this is not a one one facility example. Truly, folks, this is the way we're seeing it out in our rural counties. They're thinking that, that they're almost uh, invincible. And we talk about our young people. This is the same situation. Now, Dan, to address your issue about should we be limiting our fees so that that material can go someplace else? Certainly, that is a consideration and should be. However, it is not my decision per se that I'm going to go and take this this PPE and go into that patient's room because I just think they need a fees. That physician is the one ordering this. And that physician says, I have got a very sick patient over here and I need to know whether or not they have dysphagia that may be complicating this situation. We may end end up having a bacterial infection on top of this viral infection what all is going on here at that case if that physician feels like that that is indeed needed then the ppe would be used for that i don't make that decision i am there to do i am there to serve my patient i am there to serve the situation so yes could it be used someplace else probably so but that was not my decision that's kind of how i how i kind of look at this
0: Megan you had your hand up did you want to jump in here
2: yeah I just have a question you know Matt you, you said that patient you you recently did a study on had, had known dysphagia and had a loss and so there was an there was a concern for malnutrition what answers can we get from because I'm used to getting ordering a fees to understand the pathophysiology so I can make a treatment plan. So from a treating perspective, you know, I, I just don't see how, what, what did, what information did that, did you glean from that from doing that study on that kind of patient that helped to help to make the, the, the end decision for that patient.
5: Uh, So that patient specifically had, uh, yes, had a known dysphagia from, um, oh goodness, uh, patients with Parkinson's disease and um, had had a PEG in the past and the PEG had been removed and the patient went back to an oral diet. Um, The patient had a sort of, had had modifieds in the past year, had sort of a a mild chronic dysphagia. Uh, Patient went to the hospital with pneumonia, uh, this time was COVID negative. Uh, it was just a uh, sort of run of the bill gram negative pneumonia. Uh, the patient had was discharged with a Dobhoff tube. Dobhoff tube became clogged. Um, at that point, it was send them back to the ER uh, or uh, either for replacement of Dobhoff tube or a longer hospitalization if they were thinking longer term, um, like PEG or something like that. Uh, so, really, for us, it was. Uh, stepping in not only to determine what the treatment plan would be to determine what the pathophysiology was now, not knowing what it was since, yes, they have maybe have a pre-existing dysphagia, but what does it look like now? Uh, but also determining if oral feeding was even an option for that patient. And I don't mean an option from an SLP standpoint of view. I, I mean, I mean, is it an option for that patient? We've all seen those patients who literally eating and drinking or swallowing their own saliva is just miserable and it is truly not, uh, not an option for them or not a pleasant option. And so that was the information we, we gathered today. Um, and so that for, for today it was Dobhoff tube was clogged. Um, didn't have to be sent back to the ER. Uh, we recommended, a regular with thin liquids.
2: Sometimes I, I wonder could a, could a physician, Not not saying that a fee's you know isn't helpful in this situation. For someone as sick as that person, it just makes. If it was my father or my mother in that position, I I don't know if I would, if I would be willing to take the chance. I mean, was that? I'm I'm assuming that patient was was probably meeting all those all those uh, risk factors um, of age. And just being in a nursing home alone increases your risk exponentially. Um, and I understand that you weren't able to you didn't have to send the the patient back to the hospital. I just um, wonder could the could the physician have made some decision there to reduce reduce the risk? For that patient, meaning like you have seen probably tons of patients and you're exposing yourself to this patient.
0: Can I ask so I'm wondering,
2: are you are you guys testing yourselves? You know?
0: Can I ask a question? Uh, can I just make sure I clarify see if I'm understanding the discussion here? Um, Megan, are you essentially saying this is a patient with a neurodegenerative disease such that Whatever the reason was for having had dysphagia the last time he was determined to have dysphagia, let's say it was a year ago, six months ago, it's probably not a new reason, or it's probably not changed that much with Parkinson's disease. So if they had a known dysphagia, are you asking why the fees was necessary to say, well, this person has no dysphagia, the physiology is perhaps more advanced, but probably not terribly different, and was it necessary to expose that patient? And the physician might be able to say, based on the previous information, I have enough, and it's not? The risk is too great to expose? Is that what you're- The
2: risk, the risk is too great. I see. You okay. know, the patient's had pneumonia, patient's recently had pneumonia, um, the patient probably meets the age, probably is in a nursing home, and at this point, I'm just worried about who is who is interacting with that patient with minimal PPE, and we all know that nursing homes don't have the ventilation systems to, you know, produce the clean air actually required um, to minimize droplets uh, from these kinds of infectious diseases. So that is my big question. You know, I understand, I'm a huge proponent of fees. I, I love sending my my patients out for fees, MBS, whatever I need to, to, to better understand the swallow. But... My big question, my big question is, are are we being if if ENTs are halting their endoscopic procedures? And there's actually really a great list of um, criteria that um, CMS has put out about what you should be considering when actually choosing to trying to decide whether or not to do a procedure. Um, Such so as you know, what is the current uh, and projected COVID cases in the facility in the region, um, the current supply situation for PPE, um, the health and the age of the patient, the urgency of the procedure. These are all things that you know the the physicians themselves are are considering, and they are stopping these endoscopic pr- pr- procedures. So. Uh, in my mind, if the, if the physicians are stopping, because there's such a huge risk to these patients, these really sick patients, we often see for these fees and these MBS studies, maybe maybe we need to, well, maybe we need to reconsider what we're doing. That's, that's my thought process there.
8: It sounds like this, a lot of what this is boiling down to is every decision is a risk-benefit decision, right? And the risk is, if the person is at risk of aspirating, is allowing them to eat and aspirate a bigger risk or a less risk than the risk of going in and providing an instrumental evaluation, whether it's fees, whether it's MBS, whether it's a clinical swallow evaluation, even to go in and evaluate that person. Because at the end of the day, every physician has the choice to say, I'm going to let this patient eat or to say, I don't even need, and I don't need the risk of a consult coming in is too high that I'm going to make a decision for alternative nutrition until it's a safer situation. To me, that's what it sounds like. A lot of these situations are boiling down to is every situation is a risk benefit. And one thing that a physician had said to me, that I've really mulled over a lot. And I'm wondering if you all approach this decision, do you approach this decision with the assumption that you do have COVID? Because the reality is that unless you've been tested, every single one of us on this group chat could be positive for COVID. So do are you walking into every situation saying, I might have it, and I need to factor that into, is this consult, what I'm gonna gain, what decisions are going to be made. Is that worth it? I'm just curious. Like it, are people going in with that mindset? Because the, unless I'm wrong, like argue me this, like every one of us could have it right now. And even in situations, you know, even in areas where I know Dr. Ashford, you had mentioned like areas that are more rural that aren't yet affected. I would argue we don't actually know that they're not affected yet. I mean, I I have a cousin up in rural Maine who um, they live in a, a town of 400 people. And a week ago, I talked to him and he said, we're so lucky our area isn't affected yet. And then six days later, 60 cases popped up. So when he was telling me that the area was very infected, but they didn't know it yet. And I think that that's, it, it gives me chills just to think about that, that we could be operating in a war zone that we don't even know as a war zone yet.
3: Well, uh- May I kind of defend oh, yeah, that just a little please, bit? And
8: then we'll let Liz, who's had her hand up and hasn't Oh, asked I'm you. sorry. Go I'm ahead, sorry.
3: Dr.
0: Ashford. Ashford, please go ahead.
3: Oh, okay. Well, when I when I talk about this, we do approach every nursing home as a landmine.
8: Sure,
3: yeah. Um, I mean, th- th- just because they're in rural areas does not mean that we, that we look at it any less uh, critically, right. uh, that the risk is any less. In fact, that has been a big concern to us that they are not looking at it as a risk. That in fact, we treat every patient, if we're called to a facility, every patient is considered to be on isolation as far as we're concerned. That's the way we're gonna treat them. That's how we're going to dress out. That's how we're going to approach that patient. There's There's no lower level of contact with that patient. Uh, if we can't be, you know, if we can't isolate ourselves from them, then uh, then then we can't see them. And if it's a known COVID patient, uh, we are not seeing them. Not as far as our company is concerned. And we will not go into a facility that has a record or has, um, uh, you know, a known case. We will not do that either. Uh, that's again, is that, is that risk thing. But I, I, the, the point I wanted to try to make a few minutes ago was that a lot of these rural areas just simply are not taking this seriously enough.
2: Yeah.
3: We are when we walk in because we have masks on, we have the, the garb on, but they're not. And so that's, that's and, and you mentioned, well, could we have it? Well, sure. But once again, we're trying to keep something between us and them.
8: Okay,
7: oh, so, Liz, what, what were you going to say? Sorry, I've wanted to jump in like fifteen times, <laughs> but um, regarding the um, the Academy of Otolaryngology and their statement, they've actually revised it since to say that the original statement doesn't encompass uh, flexible laryngoscopy or nasal endoscopy or anything like that. They were specifically addressing uh, biopsies, uh, breaking the the mucosal barrier. They were talking specifically about uh, surgeries, operations. And so they've actually came back and said case by case. And that's exactly where I think most of us stand about this is saying that it's dependent on the region, depending on the availability of PPE, and I think to say that like doctors are eliminating all of their surgeries, it's not it's not the case. They're saying that, please be careful, take the, the appropriate precautions, but they are allowing these surgeries. And there's even a table now that they've put up addressing what is considered emergent uh, versus what can wait and what is recommended for people to wait. Um, so that's the first thing I wanted to say. And the second thing, Um, My question is, what exactly is the concern? Are we concerned that the patient is going to transmit the virus to us, or are we concerned that we are going to transmit the virus to the patient? Because I think there's a a big miscommunication about what what the real problem is. Because in my community, it's in the community. The the likelihood that someone's going to get it in the hospital, there's been no evidence of that. They've researched it in Sacramento, Seattle, and San Francisco. They're the biggest populations where this covid virus is rampant and it is not there's no evidence that there's an occupational transmission so i i just really want to talk about the evidence like what what are we actually worried about are we worried about the patient getting it from us or are we worried about the practitioners getting it from the patients
4: so let me chime in liz because i have a couple questions based on what you just said so i think it's both to answer your question i think that that Everyone here, Megan, Matt, I don't want to speak for you, but for me, it goes both ways, that it could come from the patient to the therapist or the therapist to, to the patient. But my question is, if it's, not trans, if it's not transmitted that way, then how is it being transmitted? If it's not being transmitted from person to person who are in close proximity, then how is it being transmitted?
7: So it definitely is transmitted via droplets because it's it's a it's just like a the the transmission is kind of like the regular flu seasonal flu that we get. It has to be from droplets from an infected person to an uninfected person, and the uninfected person has to touch those droplets or inhale them, get them into their nose, mouth, eyes. I mean, we we all kind of understand how flu transmission happens, right? So, but the studies that they're doing is that the, there was one in Singapore where they did one, 41 healthcare workers intubated this guy over four days. They all came in contact with him. They quarantined all, four, all the people for 14 days and none of them ended up testing positive for the COVID virus. They tested them on day one through five and then again on day 14 and none of them had it. And then they did another study in California. I think it was at UC Davis. Late February, 81 healthcare workers, not a single person during the entire course of this man's care with of course the proper PPE. So I think that the the evidence that's been coming out about those ENTs in Iran and the ENTs in Italy, this was before the understanding that these were that we had to have been on droplet precautions. This whole time it was being transmitted in the community without us having a full awareness of how it was being transmitted. And now, with all of this new information, we, we should be able to keep ourselves safe.
6: But, Liz, to your, to your point, they were wearing PPE, right? And so, and because the patients were known to have COVID. But if we're seeing patients in the hospital or whatever other facility that aren't necessarily COVID positive, and um, you know, we're seeing them and then going into another patient's room who, um you know isn't COVID we could potentially be passing it on and I think we've seen in New York City there are healthcare workers and, and other cities as well that are contracting uh COVID from from seeing patients. And
7: I'm not <laughs> okay go ahead. Sorry, go ahead Liz. And I'm definitely not discounting that there is a risk of transmission between healthcare workers. But what they're actually saying is that you're more likely to even if you are a healthcare worker, you're more likely to get it in your community. And bring it to the hospital than you are actually catching in the hospital setting. Because with the appropriate hand sanitation, with the appropriate masks, gowns, gloves, face shields, all that stuff, that's, that's what's supposed to protect us. And actually, it, it more protects the patients who are immunocompromised after we leave the room. I always tell my coworkers, we're not wearing contact, contact gear for us, we're wearing it to protect the next patient. So I think that, you know, to keep that in mind. We, we should be wearing the appropriate PPE. And in my acute hospital, we still have stroke patients come in every day. We still have TBI patients that come in every day. There is no way that we can test them. So we automatically have to assume every single patient in the ICU has COVID period. It takes six days to get a test. They need that stroke eval today. So I come in, I don up and you know, for people to say, well, you should save that. Then so I leave my stroke patient in there for a week and a half while the test comes back. And then what, like then a physician has to come in, place an NG tube while exposing them to more aerosolizing procedures. They're coughing, choking with successfully placing that NG tube, hopefully the first time, if not the first time, second and third time. And then in radiology has to come in and confirm placement. So then now we're burning through more PPE because I can't do a bedside eval. So, I mean, I'm not like trying to be confrontational. I just want to think beyond. So if we can't do the eval, what's next?
0: Vince you've been having your hand up for
1: so long go for it. Well Liz hit on exactly one of the points that I wanted to make and then kind of just decided I was going to wait on and that is you know the the paper that was that that initially started this firestorm you know it's anecdotal evidence and and so from what I could tell from reading the paper just like Liz said, these were people that were doing surgical procedures and had even had you know, you know really swabbed out people's nose with lidocaine. There's a huge, there's gotta be a huge spectrum of difference in, in the shedding of the virus between the way we pass the scope as a fees provider and how someone preparing a nose for surgery is, is operating. So there's gotta be, and we don't know what that is, we may not ever know what that is, but there's gotta be a difference in um, the virility of the pathogen based on how that person is being prepped for any particular procedure. So that's my comment.
4: So I, I know that it, somehow we've kind of centered this around fees for the last few minutes, but I think that this goes way beyond fees. I think it goes to the point of all of our services and what is essential and what's not essential. And and two things. First of all, as people are traveling from building to building, how what are the protocols in the building before you enter? How are they checking you who travel from building to building to see if you're Uh, you know, possibly positive. I I know I spoke to another fees provider today. She said they were checking temperatures and asking if they had a sore throat. Well, that's interesting because sore throat is not one of the characteristics of this virus. But the other thing is, as we think about what's essential and what's not essential, and all of a sudden, for some reason, Ed is becoming the Pollyanna and, and this is like, maybe I have the virus or something because it's changing my personality. But, um, <laughs>
3: Don't let it do that.
4: <laughs> <laughs> what, what can we as a profession take away from this time to say, how can we move from being from this 50% over testing or even possibly more to being encouraging more accuracy so that we're not draining the system and we're not over treating and over evaluating? What can we take away? Hopefully, this virus is going to teach us some lessons that we can carry going forward.
1: I don't necessarily think fees providers were ever over testing to begin with. And the reason I say that, it goes again back to a point that Matt made and a point that um, uh, Liz made was, you've got to determine what's going on with the patient to begin with. And if you're, if you're eliminating a transfer to a hospital, you know uh, that's one of our selling points as fees providers that we tell people all the time. It may cost you $350 to, to determine that your patient doesn't have dysphagia, but in the end we're saving you money because it's going to cost you thousands for these people that you don't catch. So, so are it's you the dollar's game.
4: So are you suggesting that every person who is identified with dysphagia would go out to the hospital?
1: No. No, but, they, but, but enough go out that it's a cost.
4: Right, but, it, so, but it, when but when we consider the numbers, when we look that you know if we look at DiBardino or Ferguson, five to fifteen percent of all pneumonias are related to aspiration. If we take the Logamin study, not Logeman, I'm sorry, Langmore study, that was longitudinal and uh, in the VA. So Dr. Ashford may have participated in this study and may be able to speak to it. Thirty-eight percent of those people develop pneumonia. If we consider that between five and fifteen percent of those people developed it because of perennial aspiration. We're talking about 7% of the population getting pneumonia. That's not a huge number, but the the volume of dysphagia evaluations and therapy that we do way exceeds 7%. And so I'm wondering how we can narrow that gap, how we can be better clinicians and better uh, at identifying who really needs evaluation and who really needs the service can we get
7: that? I feel like
8: as an acute care clinician, you're probably speaking more to me than you are to these people. And I'll say, because as an acute care clinician, I get way over consulted, like just so much because it's just so honestly, so easy to consult me. You just type a click a button in the order system and I'm getting a consult. So it's like constantly I'm, I'm like getting consults that are like, Altered mental status, like you don't need to be seen, you are clearly have esophageal disorder, like all these things I'm filtering through. Whereas the fees providers, I would like to think, I'm not a fees provider, that if somebody's going out of their way to bring an outside person into the facility to evaluate their patient, they better damn well feel like there's a reason that this person needs to be seen, right? You're not just like, oh, let's get a fees provider, let's get a fees provider for everybody, like everybody. I I feel like you guys get consults that are a little bit more filtered through than what we get in the hospital. So
1: And and skilled nursing and long-term care is where the settlement of dysphagia settles a lot of times. So that is where your sickest of the sick end up.
8: So I think your, your point, Ed, about how do we learn from this? I really do think that this is very, very um, relevant to um, speech pathologists that are working in in acute care and in the hospitals, because I think that um, doctors right now, probably more than they ever have, are are really thinking about what we provide, what patients really need to be seen. And I do think that after this is done, it is going to change culture a little bit and i think it'll be for the benefit in my opinion can i say something about that really quickly then matt it's all you okay so
0: this is what i've been i promise you i'm not obsessed with data except i sort of am obsessed with data so here's the thing if we had data on what we were actually doing as a field You know how surgeons know what percent of people are likely to actually survive a surgery or actually benefit from a surgery after years of collecting data? They're like, ooh, you have diabetes. You shouldn't do this surgery because we know X, Y, Z. We are nowhere near that, right? So what that means is that um, we don't have the data to even know, Alicia, and I, I, I love that you're obsessed with data like me, but we don't have the data to even know what this change means. We don't have a baseline and go, oh, there was a spike or, oh, there was a dip. We just have nothing. And then we're going to go back and say, we were hashtag, we were essential too, essential to, hashtag essential too. I'm not saying we're not essential. I'm just saying, show me the data, people. Like I hate to sound That's like good. Tom Cruise from um, with Chimadoodle with, what's his name? Who-
5: show me the stuff. money.
0: Show me the money. The Oscars dude who did a <laughs> flip. I I hate to sound like him, but I am the only brown person here right now. So
8: show me the data. So I think we're talking about two different types of data. I think one, what Ed and I were referring to are specific to just number of referrals, referrals that are appropriate or inappropriate. And I think the data that you're referring to is outcomes, right? So absolutely. But number of referrals and outcomes should be related. They should be related. Right. But I think that First, it's helpful to reduce the amount of inappropriate referrals. That's step one. And we don't know that until we know the outcomes, right? Sure. But I think the outcomes is a little different in what the SLPs are actually doing with these patients once, they're, once we have them in our, you know, in our little circle. Of- no, I agree. My, my, all I'm going to say
0: is we don't know what baseline is in terms of SLP role in dysphagia management in ICU. Let's just take ICU so this circumstance we can't even argue with them that we are or are not essential because we don't really know via data not based on how we feel our feelings and attitudes when we're there we don't really know if what our what our outcomes are to suggest that yeah we are in fact essential
5: uh to Ed's point i was just going to say we we need validated screens i mean i don't know if that's too simple of an answer but we need to use that one of the reasons i know that that we see about 50% of our patients don't have it because we have clinicians doing bedsides and they're not sensitive and they're not specific. And so what do you get? Um, And part of that talking to uh, Alicia about the difference in acute care uh, versus post-acute, which is everything that's not acute. um, The study that we did that this data should be published. um, The sensitivity and specificity uh, for some things like let's take the Yale uh, because I happen to, do that paper on that, Uh, the specificity is really low, and people may see that as a detriment, but I would argue that is just a statistical reality. When 25% of your patients in a hospital have dysphagia and 50% of your patients in a skilled nursing facility have dysphagia, your screen is gonna be much less specific in an acute care hospital than it will be in a SNF or a long-term care facility, but that's just a function of numbers and statistics. Uh, Screens work best at 50% uh, when there is 50% of the disorder being studied. Um, So I think we need to use those. I think we need to have validated ones. And I think then Alicia, to your point, it looks like in acute care, not only are you going to have to have validated screens that are sensitive and specific, but also have very good clinical judgment. So that when you combine that clinical judgment with something that is sensitive and specific, then that leads you to, Uh, having patients on caseload that actually do need to be seen as opposed to these over referrals. Um, And I do want to say just one thing. I know Dan wants to jump in. So uh, I do want to talk about one thing and we can talk about it anytime. Um, But the, this sort of thing where uh, we're talking about aerosolizing, which is just like social distancing. Um, I would like to talk about that in any role, Uh, laughing, coughing, sneezing, talking, uh, all of those things aerosolize. Um, and I, don't, I I see a lot of call for stopping instrumentals, not bedsides always, and I, but I don't see a lot of call, call for stopping uh, glottal stops or fricatives or plosives for those of us who are uh, enunciating. Uh, all of those things aerosolize as do chewing and swallowing. So I think we're in a dangerous area and it's not just modified some fees that might be problematic for us. So sorry for going on for a long time. Dan, I know you had something
6: to say. I just wanted to go back to that idea of what is essential. And I, I know this is going to be a very controversial question, but how essential are speech-language pathologists when there are many hospitals that don't even have speech pathologists? And even when they do, they don't have access to instrumentals. So then you take that to where we are now in terms of uh, pandemic. How essential are speech pathologists in a pandemic? I don't have the answer to those questions. I'm just kind of putting them out there.
0: I think it's a great question, and it sort of comes back to the point of what we're doing. Obviously, we're talking about medical speech pathologists. We're not talking about SLPs right now in a school system, who's maybe I don't know helping Johnny say S better or attend to the task better, right? I think that can wait a little bit, other than the person who's in and has medical needs to be in hospital.
1: But so, I mean, how how, how essential? Is walking right now? You know, why do we need a PT? How essential is um, teaching someone to feed or wipe their butt or whatever it may be that OTs are doing? I mean, if someone's in a setting for rehab, they're there for rehab. Um, I got really fired up before we got on this call tonight because there was this whole thread on, I think it was the medical SLP forum on Facebook, where essentially this therapist said, oh, they want me to go in and see this patient and they don't really need me anyway. So I'm just going to refuse to go. And it just, you know, I was like, well, if they don't need you now, why do they ever need you? Why do you wake up every day and go to work? You know, what's the point of doing cognitive rehab or TBI rehab or whatever it is you don't want to do? Because I understand that you are afraid you're going to catch this terrible disease, but you still have to consider you know, are we essential? Period. And I think the answer is yes. You know, I hope so.
0: I would still argue that the reason we can't answer this question is because before the virus, we never established via data that we were essential without the virus. So to say we're essential now needs some kind of baseline. Okay, I'm done saying baseline. I swear to God, I'll say baseline one more time.
3: I'm going to make just a simple comment on that. As, as far as who determines that we were ever, ever essential to begin with. And there is the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Wow. For Homeland Security that has designated SLP is essential for patient care. Who oh, are they? Who oh, are they? Uh, they're S-I-S-A, CISA. I guess that's what they are.
7: Wait a minute. It's our job to,
0: to uh, maybe, maybe, John, this is not what you're suggesting. Let me know if I'm off. It is our job to establish ourselves as essential because we are always Ooh. ancillary. It
3: I would is- never, I would never argue with that. I would <laughs> never argue. But I think what we have to recognize that we have been recognized as essential by, by, by this government agency here. You know, I can remember when I worked in the VA, worked in the VA for 30 years. And we had uh, shutdowns, you know, or we had, uh, uh, you know, uh, funding problems. And so we didn't know whether or not we were going to be sent home or not. And, you know, we, with this whole term of, are you essential or are you not essential? And so I remember I used to ask myself, no, boy, they're going to ask me to go home. They're going to give me the pink slip and tell me to go home. Never.
0: Yeah, but I, again, I, I still...
3: We were never...
0: I understand that. I understand that, and I you know I've been at the NIH where that those questions were being asked. Right. But my my issue is that the idea of essential technically hasn't been defined in a formal way by all of healthcare. However, I completely agree with you, John, that there's this idea that we are essential based on the fact that we you know we all want to say that swallowing is really important, and I get that. But I still think that the reason we're here now is because we never set it up in the first place, right? Oh, and, so, well, I, I, and, so, and so because argue of security, yeah, yeah. So some security, you know, acronym from the government said something. I still think that we have to really consider that we will never really know until we come out of this and start actually collecting data about who we are and what we do. And that, and, as, as, and here's the thing, you are in a unique position. Here's why you're in a unique position because your company has the capacity to collect data without a lot of the constraints that a lot of institutionalized individuals do. You have a private business that has more flexibility about the data that you collect on your patients, obviously right. HIPAA, HIPAA and IRB, et cetera, protections, privacy, but we, many of us don't have those opportunities. I'd love to just walk into the hospital associated with my institution and just collect data. But I have to go through so many constraints that by the time I do it, I don't know. So I guess my question to you is, within your facility, do you think what percentage, because it sounds like what Matt is saying, 50% of the time you're essential. Is it fair to say that you're, or would you say that your capacity to 100% of the time differentiate normal from disordered means you're always essential? So even though only 50% of the patients may need you beyond the evaluation. Do you know where that ranks with other forms of testing, be it stroke or any other testing where they try to say disorder versus not disorder? Does dysphagia actually line up 50% of the time? Is, it, is 50% meaning it's reasonable? What, what are the other tests showing?
3: Yeah, well, I, I, can't, I can't answer that question right off, but I mean, you know, the data does tell us that in nursing care facilities where we are, that there's 58% of those folks have dysphagia, all right? Now we are being asked to look at that 58% to see, indeed, do they have dysphagia or do they not? And is there some way that we can improve their lot? And so that's why we're called in. I mean, that's it. I know I have looked at, uh, and oh, I wish I had the data in front of me. I have looked at this in the years past about, what effect do we have on, if we do a fees, what effect does that have on the patient as far as, say, in three weeks, where is he going to be? If I go in do a fees and say, hey, I think you need uh, uh, to uh, change his diet to another diet, okay, uh, elevate his diet. Is, is that going to uh, improve? Is he going to say the same, improve or get worse? And what we did was we went back and looked at these 200 some odd patients and we found out that in almost every case they either remained the same or really got much better. What about taking them off of NG tubes? Yes, we got a lot of folks off and they stayed off of NG tubes. So yeah, we're essential for that. I think our our job, what we're doing is essential for looking at those factors. And we have a little data on it. We've not published it. We did uh, we did some uh, poster sessions at ASHA with it. But yeah, you know, um, you're right. We need to look a lot more. We need to have a lot more data. We need to establish, um, you know, see, I've had the feeling all along, that SLPs are stepchildren in the medical profession anyway. And because we come from a psychology education Com, you know, component. I mean, I was, I was told I'd never seen a phasic patient.
0: But John, can I just say this? And then I think Dan has something to say. I, I totally hear what you're saying, this whole redheaded stepchild situation. But here's my view. Speech pathologists have been letting other medical professionals live rent free in their head and they're trashing the place. At this point, if we don't collect our own data and do our own thing, they're always going to be the people who were sort of the, the, you know, not the redheaded stepchild. So, you know, I kind of worry about that. And again, collecting our own data is going to be the thing that does it. Dan, did you
8: have something to say? And it better be quick because I'm about to explode.
6: (laughs) So I'm in a facility where I can receive a consult um, on the computer and I can choose to discontinue that consult. I can see the patient's entire chart, history, imaging, uh, you know, et cetera. I'm wondering, for those of you who have uh, mobile fees companies, do you ever refuse... Um, a consult or um, uh, when you a request to do a fees in in whatever set. Yes. And what would that criteria be?
1: Vince, you want to go ahead? Well, you know, just thinking about I always would get on the phone with whoever was my referring source. And if I felt like that patient would be better served by a modified or or if what they were referring to me was just so off the planet to begin with, I would say, look, why don't you take this other route first and then get back to me? So I mean, I can't give you a, you know, a specific criteria, but I really would try to tease out if it was, you know, reflux related or yes. something that was just, you know, just, you know, not the appropriate test for. I, I didn't I didn't want to waste anybody's time or money. Um, I wanted to have good results so they'd call me back so why always show up and be the bearer of you know you don't know what you're doing kind of news Um, I tried to work with them in such a way that they were making those decisions so Dr. Ashford may have more no ditto ditto
8: so I'm going to circle us back a little bit because I feel like we're getting a little bit off on a tangent that's people that are treating COVID patients right now are like really desperate for insight on that specifically. So I want to bring up something that I've been mulling around in my head, and I want to preface this by saying this is a conversation that's extremely specific to the situation that we're in right now in this pandemic. And the conversation is, you know, we've talked a lot about when do we see patients, when do we not see patients, the risk-benefit conversation. So I think about. What would you do? I want to ask, what would you do in this situation? Cause I'm going to tell you what, I, what my thought process is and I would love for somebody to convince me the other way. So my dad is um, 67 years old. He's high risk. He's had lung issues. He's had heart issues. He is somebody that if COVID hits him, he's in deep trouble. Right? So I've thought about this situation before where what if my dad gets put in the hospital and it's unclear if he has COVID or not. Right but he's getting really sick and he is, because of medical complications, we've seen these types of patients where because of medical decline or whatever reason, say he has a stroke, whatever the reason is, he's in the hospital and he is showing signs of dysphagia. Now let's take out of this factor that I am a speech pathologist. I'm a regular caregiver and somebody comes in to me and says, um we would like to have a speech pathologist come and see if your dad has dysphagia the risk is is that that speech pathologist could have covid we don't know it's it's a it's a risk right you're introducing somebody new into the room to come and see this patient to evaluate this patient do i make the decision that it's worth it to have somebody come in and evaluate this and make a decision or do i say I would rather just let him eat. And it's crazy for me to feel this way because I would only feel this way in this situation, but I have a hard time thinking about a situation where I wouldn't just say I would just let him eat because I know the data on what pneumonia would do. And I know the data on what COVID would do to him. And to me, it's overwhelming that the risk of COVID far outweighs the risk of letting him eat. And I think that that's where I'm having a lot of cognitive dissonance in my profession and what I do and what I specialize in, in the context of COVID. And that's where I'm really struggling. And I would love to hear people weigh in on that debate. Um, if they've had a similar experience, if they think totally opposite, I'm very open to it. But that's, that's where I'm at right now. So your question is, overall,
0: should SLPs stay out of this as much as possible and let people eat versus going in and potentially introducing them to COVID, yay, nay, under what circumstance, yes or no?
8: Yeah, I'm, making, I'm making this a little black and white, and I don't want it to be black and white. I, but you I- want to start somewhere. But I want to introduce the nuance because yeah. I want to hear where is the nuance here? Right. Cause I'm, I'm thinking of it in the context of my dad where I'm like, Oh my gosh, like just let him eat, like, just keep as many people out of his room as possible, reduce his exposure as much, much as possible. And just let him eat. Like what is the situation where you say, where you make a different decision than that? So
7: I'm asking this as an acute care therapist, why do you think that your dad would be at an increased risk of getting COVID if I, the SLP, enter the room versus a doctor, a nurse, a respiratory therapist, a patient care tech?
8: Sure. I, I would say that it's, um, it's a numbers game, right? So it sort of uh, goes along the line of social distancing, right? So if I'm limiting as myself, if I only see one person a day, I am absolutely at less risk Then if I go to Publix every single day, if I go and just expose myself to more people, to me, it's a numbers game, right? So to me, to reduce the amount of people that are entering that room is reducing, I don't know, every single person that walks into that room, we have a limit in PPE. That's an important factor in this decision-making process. I don't know anybody that walks into the room who they've been exposed to before me. I don't know that. So I have to base it purely on a numbers game of who is the essential people that need to come into that room. And it's just a risk benefit. You know, I'm not, it's not clear cut, but I think that if you're letting 50 people into a patient's room versus two, the risk is higher.
4: So I would say, I agree with you that, you know, and the other thing that I would say is for those people who are COVID positive, who are coming off of ventilators, there, we have research about um, thickened liquids, you know, causing dehydration, and it's the worst thing we can do to a person who's trying to recuperate from a respiratory virus who had, who just been ventilated because uh, the dehydration inhibits mu- mucus movement and just, so it just settles in the lung instead of clearing out. And then, of course, we know that altered diets have decreased calories, and these people need all the calories they can get for healing. So, not just the people who don't have. Um, the virus, but people who are recuperating from the virus, that our typical tactics could be quite harmful to these people.
0: Liz, were you? did you have a follow-up question to Alicia's point about it being a numbers game? I think what Alicia's saying is, it's not that we are more likely, I mean, let me know, it's not that SLPs are more likely to pass it on, it's just, if you're talking about, it comes back to the idea of essential, that if you believe that a physician and a nurse is essential, and an SLP is maybe redundant or just confirming a the suspicion they already have, which is why they consulted us. The question is, why bring that in? Am I right there? Liz, did you have a follow-up point? I thought maybe you
8: did. It, but it's also, if my dad does have COVID, passing it on to somebody else, who's going to pass it on to somebody else, right? It's just, it's it's the whole concept behind social distancing. I think we have to practice it everywhere and make these types of decisions. Like, I'm I only go to the grocery store when it's essential, when I need something. I only do things, It's a, we're all making risk benefit decisions every single minute of our day. Um, and I don't think that that stops at the hospital. I think if a doctor can call into the room and provide me information, I'm gonna ask him to do that versus walking into the room to provide information. It's little decisions like that. Um, so I'm just curious. I mean, I, I'm throwing out a very provocative like scenario there for purposes of discussion. Yeah, for sure, and I
7: think that, you know, this might be a bold statement, but I feel safer at my hospital than I do at like (laughs) a public.
8: Do you have have proper PPE for every patient that you see? I, I do, and like, you
7: know, we go into patients' rooms with a mask, with a gown, and that, and for a patient that's under suspicion, that's enough. I mean, at my hospital specifically, we use uh, the N95 masks and that, that actually, there's little evidence that shows that that's even necessary at this point. For a suspected patient, a, a surgical mask is is more than enough. And because again, with the droplet precautions, the, the patient has to cough directly at you, or you have to ingest it. I mean, there's, there's the, the rate of transmission is not very high unless there's direct contact. And the possibility of us being one-to-one on top of a patient is very low. We can do a lot of our um, assessment being a few feet away from the patient until otherwise needed. But even when we do need to be on top of the patient directly, um, the, that rate of transmission with the proper PPE is very, very low.
8: Sure, but even coming into the room, so I think there's two things. One is that I think it's great that you guys have proper P- PPE. Unfortunately, that's not the case at most hospitals. Um, I mean, m- my best friend is an emergency physician here in Jacksonville, one of the largest hospitals, and she um, has to reuse her mask every single day when she goes in, which is, a, which is I think, very typical of what's happening. People are using, um, you know, I have a friend at Brigham and Women's Hospital, they don't even get masks um, unless they're on certain floors. Like, I think that's the reality of the situation. So I think that where you're coming from is probably unique to, um, your situation too, which I think is a very valid point. I think if you do have, if you're equipped with a proper PPE, I think that's a probably a different conversation. Um, and I think that, I, I think that, that, that definitely factors in. Um, and I forgot what my second point was.
6: Well, well going back to what, what's you know essential and what's not. So Liz, you have PPE and you're doing those studies, but um, in your friend's hospital, Alicia, the SLPs there are not, right? So how is that okay where you have SLPs who are in two different hospitals who typically do do fees exams where one uh, group is doing them currently and one is not, right? So it goes back to the question of do do we really make the difference or do we really need to, to do that fees exam right now? Where, when the um, national, where the Academy of Otolaryngology is recommending limiting care at this time to time sensitive and emergent problems, right? Where, you know, at your friend's hospital, are they really, are are SLPs really needed to do emergent care?
8: I think the time, time is, is a very important point, Dan, because I think that, you know, in that, in the example I gave, is an SLP needed? Absolutely. Is it in that moment? Maybe not. Maybe, maybe not in that moment that it can perhaps wait because really what's the decision that's going to be made? You can eat or you need alternative nutrition, right? I mean, the eating is, there may be a variation of that, but the alternative is that you need alternative nutrition. And I think that in a lot of cases, you can reasonably, make a decision based on either one of those until the patient can get tested, until they are out of the acute setting to be able to be evaluated in a situation that's a little bit safer where we have more information. Um, and again, this is so unique to this situation. We don't have the right answers. I don't even know if what I, I'm probably going to change my mind tomorrow when I think about this, but I, I feel for the therapists that are going in to every patient and having to th- about that decision every single and it's so opposite of what we're trained to have been thinking our whole lives practicing like Mm. we're it's a total culture shift cognitive dissonance and it's hard because it's our profession and we're so we we care about it a lot um so i think that these are just like touchy conversations and it's hard but i think you have to think about like if it was your family member i don't know can I say something?
2: Uh, I, I really like Al- Alicia's um, example here because I, I think we all have to we all constantly have to put ourselves in the patient's shoes. And even even without COVID-19, we have to think about the patient. And 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 if this was our family member, um, I I have asked myself the same question. My mom has a, a lung, one lung. <laughs> one, one and a little bit. So she has part of her, her other, her right lung removed. Um, and I always think, well, if this was a similar situation, what would I do? I think, I think I would just say, you know, let's focus on oral care and let's, let's eat, let's do what's comfortable for you for the time being, because what I'm nervous about with this kind of discussion is people are hearing, yes, I'm doing these kinds of studies, but I have the proper PPE um, whereas other people are not very comfortable even with the proper PPE because it's a numbers game um, the the ventilation systems I'm going to come back to that because i I don't know how many of you have asked your your facilities how how are the ventilation systems? Because infectious diseases like these, like COVID, SARS, are just rotated in the air. <laughs> like there's studies on, on you know, how we can actually um, get samples of SARS and SARS is, COVID is part of SARS. Um, an example, one of SARS uh, diseases and so I, I I think it's not just about PPE. It's also about are we, how can we possibly clean the air the proper way? There's actually, you know, CDC has um, examples of, uh, I mean, it's not examples, but guidelines of how w- negative pressure rooms you're supposed to be, if you're going to be doing these procedures, if you're going to be interacting with patients, having a negative pressure room to do that in and following all those kinds of dis- disinfection protocols, are, are people who are doing these studies following those kinds of things too?
5: So one of the things that I, I have a question for is, is back to kind of Alicia's point, and then Megan as well, I like both of your points in that we're, we're kind of looking at what if this were my family member? My question would be sort of ethically as practitioners in, in the realm of medicine, there is no way I can treat every patient like it is my parent. Um, there's a reason doctors aren't supposed to treat their family members. We have to be dispassionate to a certain degree. And we certainly can't decide to treat or not treat, at least in my in my book, ethically, based on a disease. I mean if we were having a conversation, I, I know it's it's a different conversation, but it may help highlight about refusing to treat somebody because they're HIV positive. I mean, what would that conversation look like? I'm therapists not going into rooms because of uh, there is a certain disease process that's going on. I, I get it. And maybe this is getting at more of that nuanced conversation you want to have Alicia, that if it were my family member, what would I do? I would also argue you and I have talked about this actually probably everybody on the, in this group I've talked to about this. We're not really doing studies to determine whether or not you're aspirating. We're doing these studies to determine what's going on with the physiology And to make treatment decisions based on that pathophysiology. And I'd also like to hear Megan talk about this. Because, Megan, I know you do a whole lot more with head and neck. And which ones of those patients can wait? And what are you doing? I know you're trying to develop something to help triage those patients so that you're not sending patients with immunocompromised patients in to get swallow studies um, I, I'd like to hear some discussion about that, because I, I do think as practitioners in medicine, it is nice to take it back to something personal, but we also have to be dispassionate to a certain degree when we treat patients.
8: How about this? How about we just solve this problem by all these, these providers that are here? Y'all just set up like a tent and we will, everybody that's in the hospital will just, when they get discharged, we'll send you to... This, we'll get they'll get COVID tested. We'll send them all to you guys so you can get the proper treatment and the proper diagnosis, so that we just have to stop arguing about this in the hospital. We've already got, got that
3: set up. We have a tent, and all they you put them in a car and just drive and put them on the passenger side. Yes. And when they come out, we step up to the car and uh, no we do a mobile
0: fee. Like COVID testing fees. Mobile
3: fees. Mobile mobile fees. That's what it's called. Mobile, mobile fees. it's
0: the same thing, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah.
8: Yeah. Can, you, can you guys be like the a, like the ATM? Where you just you know you have like a drive-through, or it's like the can COVID be like
0: Chick Fil A drive-through, but way more efficient. I'm just saying.
8: I feel yeah. like you guys are all skilled enough to be able to pass a scope with somebody in the driver's seat of their car, right? I mean, come on. Yeah. Simple. Problem yeah. solved. Yeah.
1: This is like the most intense episode of Hollywood Squares ever. <laughs> <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, and that's one of the things about about doing uh, MBSs, and mm-hmm. I think it's been pointed out. Um, aside from moving the patient, there is an issue of having a patient in a radiology suite. Um, t- having been through this before when I was in the VA, whether or not I was doing a C-arm in the patient's room or whether or not I was doing a study in the patient's, in the radiology suite, uh, when we had an infectious condition, the cleanup afterwards was tremendous. And um, um, we, we got a little pushback on doing the MBSs from the radiologists because it was, it was taking up a room because it had to be cleaned so well. So I think that that's been one of the pushbacks about that as well by doing MBSs. Not that fees is, you know, the go-to but it's certainly for convenience wise if you have to do a study uh, you're 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 not moving that patient you're not putting that patient out where others can be infected or that patient might get infected
6: in, in addition to what, what john is saying uh, as someone who does fees and mbs probably 50-50 right so I, i'm not biased either way um, i think that right now it's about limiting exposure you know it, my exposure and the patient's exposure. And that's why I think it all goes back to the essentialness, if you will, of dysphagia services in each of the settings in which we work.
8: I think you hit the nail on the head. I mean, I think our first priority is limiting exposure, and that's the, that's the reality. In knowing that there are instances where perhaps limiting exposure is not beneficial to the patient that the patient needs to be seen and i think you know for all the speech pathologists listening out there i think that it's our duty to really screen consults that come in to be creative about are there is this the best time what are our other options it may not look like what it normally looks like for us in our practice but what is the risk benefit for that patient and um, I think those are, are conversations and thoughts that are really hard and that we really have to make with the priority in this country right now of not passing on this disease.
3: May I comment on that? That's also being taken out of our hands too, um, at least out in the nursing care and doing mobile fees. Um, as each of these nursing homes, um, and this is what it's kind of being left to now is that a lot, actually individual companies, uh, individual nursing homes are making their own rules about who can come in, who can. Um, I know when we were doing, uh, you know, last month, we might have done 150 swallow studies this month, we've done less than 20. That tells you that what's happening is extrinsically, this is being shut down that we are not, that we have no say so over it really. It's being shut down to where it's preventing people from getting, preventing us from getting into facilities. It's preventing families from getting into facilities. So we're seeing the lockdown in a lot of these and that's going to limit, that's going to limit us doing fees or doing anything like this. So a lot of us just kind of sitting here twirling our thumbs for the next two or three months.
6: So, have, you, have you seen any negative consequences as a result of not doing as many studies?
3: Oh, other than I eat a lot of pasta. But other than that, you know, um, um, negative consequences. Th- those studies that I think we have been asked to go see have been have been necessary. And I think uh, uh, Matt will definitely, uh, you know, say that. Uh, we haven't seen any frivolous, you know. Oh, we'll come out. We kind of think maybe he might have us. We. They've been pretty much right on, but um, but we we're going to get fewer and fewer referrals until this thing gets over the peak
4: so can we do a retrospective study when this is over and look at adverse outcomes of the entire nursing home population that you service and look at malnutrition dehydration pneumonia we don't even have to talk about aspiration pneumonia and see if those incidents those incidents went up, are increased, because there were less uh, imaging, there was less imaging, and there was less SCN, SLP involvement with those patients. I think that would really tell us if we are over-utilizing our services.
2: Oh, so I'm I, next, ahead can ahead I ahead just
0: ahead. add something really quick? What if we find that aspiration pneumonia? if you're saying it's a thing, because the Ferguson paper suggests it's not, what if we're saying that... SLP-related care doesn't change at all. Let's say this goes through September, God forbid. It goes through September and there's no change in SLP care and and, and dysphagia-related issues. Does that mean that speech pathologists are gonna be cut back because we only had 50% or less of you guys and nothing changed for the worse?
8: So I'm gonna be devil's advocate and say that I think that, and this is gonna be a surprising comment coming from me, Is that I think we're looking at this as black and white in terms of if we're looking at outcomes it's well what if there were no increase in negative consequences that may be the case but I think it's also a continuum of we're not looking at um, you know I've been working in in the physical therapy realm for a while but maybe maybe falls didn't increase right but maybe a lot less patients were able to walk independently versus were able to have like a bunch of max restrictions. What's the equivalent of walk independently for us? I we don't have... Equivalent. I just oh. think, I think this is important data and I think we have to collect it on a continuum and not just look at negative consequences or not negative consequences. I think that we have to look at it, um, and, it and it could be bad either way, right? I mean, I think we have to look at um, are patients improving from a rehabilitative perspective that correlates with actual physiology? And is that physiology correlated with? But nobody's collecting the physiology. I mean, I hear what you're saying.
2: I love it. But That's- wait a second. It doesn't stop with the fees. So sure. I, I mean, I don't understand. Like if we look at all the, it's hard to look at the, the, um, all the negative outcomes that might be happening from this when the,
8: the, the treating therapists aren't able to really uh, get any information to make it better. I think, I think that's the whole point is that we're talking about looking at data that does not exist whatsoever and that is desperately needed to be collected. But first of all, we can't look at comparing anything to what's happened before because we have no data on anything that's happened before. But I do think that this pandemic has made us really step back and think about where we're making the biggest differences in our patients. What patients are we really, really giving them? Um, are we really improving? And, I, and what ones, maybe are we not? Maybe, maybe we can trim the fat in some areas to boost up the people that really need to be seen and that we can really improve and give the time to and the resources too that are being wasted in other areas. And I I hope that we can take a step back from this and maybe start collecting data to better understand that. It sucks that it's taken this to really have us think about it, but I'm hopeful that these conversations are happening. But these patients who are
2: getting the fees, these
8: emergency fees, these are
2: like worst case scenarios. And oftentimes these are not candidates for therapy.
0: No, I, but therapy is not the end goal of everything though, Megan. I mean, therapy is great, but it's also not always necessary. So, And I get that you said it in the beginning, you're a treating therapists. And so obviously that matters to you, but sometimes treatment is is just let them go eat or it's a, it's a decision, to whatever it is, not totally. the all the time, right? I totally so, agree. So in the next minute or so, can we each take 30 seconds, 30 seconds, John, 30 seconds, and summarize what we think the main thing is that anybody, any speech pathologist and medical SLP needs to, t- needs to take home from this conversation. I'm not gonna start because I need, to, I need to hear what you guys have to say. Go, John.
3: Well, I think, I think uh, SLPs need to look at themselves and see how confident they are in their own skills mm-hmm. and where they are in this profession. Uh, I think that, these, uh, that there is a need for us to be part of the medical team when we are requested. And I think, um, um, just to end it, I think we can still do our jobs, but we still have to be very careful as a member of the medical team.
6: Dan. I think that right now, I think that we all know what best practice is, but I think that we need to keep in mind the difficult situation we're in right now. And I think we need to think of what best practice is right now. And I think that we need to keep in mind limiting exposure. I think we need to keep in mind um, reserving PPE until there is an abundance of such. And I think we, what we didn't talk about was keeping in mind the patient and what the patient wants. And I think that we need to do everything that we can to limit exposure of ourselves and the patient while keeping the patient's wishes in mind.
5: Matt. You point right to me, not to someone's lamp. So that's kind of nice. Um, so I would say it is highly incumbent upon your situation. Um, you know, we were talking with, with Liz earlier and, and she was saying, yes, I absolutely have the PPE uh, to reform these. Um, so you're going to ask yourself one question is, 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 can I protect, can I protect myself? Um, and then the third question is, is, are my services warranted? Uh, and this is that sort of age old Uh, thing that we see on social media so much about when people want to use their clinical expertise. Well, this is the perfect situation to use clinical expertise. It is a novel situation in which we do not have data. I mean, just, we have limited data. We have anecdotal evidence from across the country and across the world. And so taking into account those things um, specifically, uh, what, what are our services gonna do for this patient? Limiting exposure, do I have the PPE? Should the PPE be used for someone else if we are short, uh, rather than my services? Um, And using that just clinical knowledge and expertise per patient.
0: Okay, Ed, you're next, except I just wanna say, evidence-based practice is a combination of science, research, clinical, acumen your clinical data and patient preferences so data are in fact clinical expertise and knowledge as well so i do know what you mean you talk about research evidence which we don't have data for but clinical expertise is in fact an important an important stool of a (laughs) clinic of evidence-based practice
4: let's all i want to say is let's don't think hashtag essential let's think of what is essential and only provide those services that we have triaged and determined are essential. Let's don't think our presence is essential.
8: I'm going to piggyback off of that and say, let's all take a page out of our colleagues in dentistry and orthopedics and other fields where they are, have decided that even rotator cuff surgeries and root canals, all these things are not essential right now and they're not doing them and they're opening up their clinics only for, emergent situations people that are um you know whatever in dire need of of services and they're actually opening up their doors for emergency staff to come in and just screen patients and i think that we just need to follow that lead and not see all comers and just really think about what are the essential people that need to be seen where that risk where it crosses that threshold of risk benefit Okay,
1: Leash, that was your debrief. Vince, are you ready to go? Yes. Um, I'm a big proponent of multidisciplinary and interdisciplinary practice. And I think now more than ever is when we have to realize that we are not islands unto ourselves. And so if I had to encourage the SLP that is out in the field, whether it's skilled nursing or acute care or an outpatient clinic or whatever, consult with the physician, the nurses, look at what the overall atmosphere of the COVID epidemic is in your particular area and make your decisions from there.
7: Okay, Liz, are you ready to go? So my thoughts are, is that every single patient deserves an individualized treatment plan. I don't think that we as healthcare practitioners should take a step back and just completely throw our hands up in the air and ignore our patients when they need us the most. With that being said, every single situation is different. It will depend on your facility, your setting, who you're working with, the risk benefits, um, the patient's needs at that time. Tons of other factors come into play, but I think that big sweeping blanket statements that, you know, prevent someone doing something that potentially help the patient does nothing but a disservice um, to our our entire field and to the patient. And this situation is ever evolving. So as it as we get more evidence, as we get more data, um, as things come to light, I'm sure that you know the guidelines will change. But I think that we should continue to keep up with those guidelines.
0: Megan,
2: last word. All right. So I think this situation, this pandemic has forced us to really look at if we're making good decisions about uh who should be getting swallow studies or not unfortunately Um, i'm interested in seeing the data but um aside from that i think um every everyone in the trenches as they say should be thinking about how much risk am i bringing on to the patient if i'm not able to wear the proper ppe if i'm not ready if i'm not Able to follow the guidelines. If I am willing to follow the guidelines, if I'm able to follow the guidelines, um, is this a necessary procedure, or is this something that perhaps the PP would be able to, would be better used by someone in who's caring for the critically ill? Okay. I hope that this conversation,
0: while it was not you know, the most perfect consensus, it's an indication of how varied and vast and moving this situation is, that we have nine individuals here who have a range of great clinical expertise, great research expertise, and we don't have all the answers. All we have are inferences and our clinical experience and some data to suggest that this is where we are right now. This conversation might be totally different by the end of April, for all we know, right? And I hope that in the event that it is, that each of you might be willing to come back for a part two. Um, but hopefully, we only need a part one because not much changes and we just all goes down. That would be our great circumstance. So thank you all for being a part of this conversation. Awesome. Great.
6: Bye bye. It was great chatting with all of you. Thanks, Thanks so much. Thank,
2: much. thank you. Right. Bye. Bye. Right. Thank you.